gospel-centered community. These passages will help us think about what it looks like to be a community of people centered around Jesus Christ. And today, I have the privilege of having my good friend Josh Fenske open God's Word with us and for us. Josh and I pastored together for many years, and he he is a really a, a partner in the gospel, the good news with us as a church. He and I talk monthly to encourage each other as I always learn from him. And we have his parents here who are beloved members. And so Mindy is going to read our passage before Josh comes. So welcome. That in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Reading from God's word for us today. Well, I, I love being here. I love being here for a lot of reasons. You all are part of a great church. Um, there's, there's a great community here. The ministry from one to another, the one another ministries here in this church family um, are beautiful to observe even from a distance. We've got a great community. We've got a great pastor who I love a lot and I love his family a lot. Uh, as he mentioned, we talk regularly and I, I keep you know, years after we kicked him out of our church, I still keep trying to learn from him and benefit from him. We called it a send-off Sunday, but it was a kick-out Sunday. But anyway, no, years later, I'm still trying to learn from him and benefit from him. you got a great, you got great leaders here in this church, not just Tab. I love the, the other elders here as well. You're part of a great commission. And this is one of the things that I think is so cool when I get to meet with people who live in other places and are a part of uh, the, the global church, when I get to see other believers and interact with other believers from other places, it's a cool thing for me to realize we're a part of one great commission. 2,000 years ago, Jesus stood on a hillside about as far away from this part of the planet as possible, right? On the other side of the planet, Jesus stood on a hillside and talked to a ragtag little group of people, and, and he had the audacity <laughs> to say, uh, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He had just died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins and risen again in new life. And now he says, all authority in all of heaven, all authority in all of earth has been given to me. And he talks to this ragtag little group of people. He says, go therefore and make disciples among all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And then he said, and behold, 
I am with you always to the end of the age. And, and listen, here's the thing. The reason that you all are here today as a church is because of that 2,000 years ago. You're a part of this great global thing that's been rolling through the centuries and spreading virally around this planet. And even though I don't get to be here and see you face to face every Sunday, getting to be here today is a sweet reminder to me that we are united together in this, this global vision, not Tab's global vision, not Grace Church's global vision, but Jesus's global vision that, that we sometimes call the Great Commission. So you're a part of something really awesome, really great here. And in addition to those reasons why I love being here, um, some of my favorite people in the world are here today. Uh, my parents are here. My sister is here. My cousin Mike is here. My wife Katie is here. I mean, this is like the coolest thing. So I am so, so glad to be here. Thanks for welcoming me and allowing me a few minutes to talk. Tab was making fun of me and like being really mean to me about the fact that I preach too long sometimes. So one of the results of that is you get no introduction to this sermon, okay? No intro at all. That's what you get for that. So we're diving straight in. The theme of this passage, uh, if you were paying attention a minute ago, the theme of this passage is thanksgiving or gratefulness for other people, right? Uh, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 4 of this book of 1 Corinthians, I give thanks to my God always for you. The theme of this passage is gratefulness. And I want to say a few things about the importance of gratefulness and about the surprise of gratefulness here in this passage and also about the reasons for gratefulness. Let's start by talking a little bit about the importance of gratefulness. The importance of gratefulness right here at the beginning of uh, this letter to the church in Corinth about 2,000 years ago written by Paul. There's an author named Sam Crabtree who was a school teacher. I think he taught middle schoolers, which like super cred for that, right? You know, you have to be a special kind of human being to teach middle schoolers for a living, right? And he wrote a little book about Christian encouragement called Practicing Affirmation. The subtitle of that book is God-Centered Praise for Those Who Are Not Gods. And one of the ways that Mr. Crabtree, a school teacher who had been observing human beings in their rawest form, middle school human beings, right? He'd been observing human beings for some amount of time, and he describes the importance of affirmation like this. He says, quote, A fire not stoked goes out. A refrigerator unplugged rots the eggs, which were perfectly good not too long ago. A garden not tended erupts with weeds, not vegetables. But in relationships, affirmation, Mr. Crabtree says, affirmation is the fire-stoking, refrigerator-electrifying, garden-tending side of relationships. Now, I bet you've experienced that in your own life, right? I bet you've experienced the truth of that, that affirmation is a fire-stoking, refrigerator-electrifying, garden-tending aspect of relationships with other people. So when dad pats you on the back and says, good job, what effect does that have on you? It stokes a fire, right? It electrifies something. It helps something grow. When one of your friends in church writes a note to you expressing gratefulness for you, what effect does that have inside of you? It lights a fire, right? It electrifies something. It makes things grow. When, when a leader 
in your church says, I really see the spiritual gift of mercy at work in your life. What effect does that have on you? It electrifies something. It stokes a fire. It makes things grow, right? When someone that you care about speaks up at the dinner table and expresses how your life has demonstrated patience toward other people, what effect does that have on you? It stokes a fire, it electrifies something, it makes things grow, right? On the other hand, however, maybe you know all too well what it's like to hope for affirmation, to be thirsty for any affirmation at all from other people without ever hearing it. Maybe one of your parents made you feel over and over and over again that you were not fill-in-the-blank enough when you were a kid. Not smart enough, not strong enough, not pretty enough, not interesting enough, not normal enough, not cool enough, not Christian enough, not fill-in-the-blank enough. Well, what effect does that have over time? Maybe your experience is that when other high schoolers say something about you or notice something about you, It's not something that you would want them to notice or it's not something that you would want them to be talking about. What effect does that have on you? Maybe your boss encourages one teammate in your office, but like only one teammate and like nobody else ever. And you feel that your contributions to the team are just not valued, just not recognized, just not seen for what they really are. What effect does that have on you in the workplace? A refrigerator unplugged rots the eggs, which were perfectly good not too long ago, right? You see the importance of gratefulness. There's something true in what Mr. Crabtree points out, whether it's words of affirmation with your spouse or words of affirmation in other family relationships, words of affirmation in your neighborhood or with your friends, words of affirmation in your school or in your workplace. There's some truth in what Mr. Crabtree points out. A fire not stoked goes out, a refrigerator unplugged rots the eggs, a garden not tended erupts with weeds, but affirmation really can be that fire-stoking, refrigerator-electrifying, garden-fertilizing side of relationships. And here's, here's the thing. Here in the book of 1 Corinthians, this is a very important letter in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul wrote more books of the New Testament than anybody else did. And this is his second longest book. Only the book of Romans is a little bit longer than this. In this book of 1 Corinthians, as I'm sure you'll notice in the next few weeks as you continue on in your sermon series through 1 Corinthians, it covers a wide variety of topics. There's rich Christian theology here in this letter. There's concrete, specific, sometimes even sharp words of correction here in this letter. But how does this letter begin? After Paul has taken just a couple of lines to basically say, Greetings, here's who I am. Greetings, here's who I understand you are before God. What does Paul go to first? Gratefulness. Gratefulness 
not only in his own heart, but gratefulness expressed out loud before the Lord, and then gratefulness expressed to other people in an affirming kind of way. Where does, where does this letter begin? It doesn't begin with abstract theology. It doesn't begin with correction. He begins with something powerful. He begins with a word of personal gratefulness. I thank God always for you. And that's where Paul begins. Maybe he understood a thing or two about the importance of gratefulness. In fact, people who study ancient literature still agree with the observation of Professor Schubert who noticed about 50 years ago that, quote, Paul mentions the subject of thanksgiving, in other words, he talks about giving thanks for other people, more frequently per page than any other Hellenistic author, pagan or Christian. It seems that Paul really understood what Mr. Crabtree was pointing out about the importance of affirmation. It appears that Paul understood that people who show up on Sunday morning need to be reminded of God's grace at work in their lives. It appears that Paul understood that expressing gratefulness for others out loud is a vital tool in the process of strengthening and ministering to other people. Maybe this morning you need to be strengthened by being reminded of the grace of God in your life. Maybe you've had a hard time believing that there's anything worth affirming. Maybe you've had a hard time believing that there's anything worth giving thanks for in your own life. Maybe this morning you need to be nudged by this passage to give thanks more often and more loudly and more explicitly for other people. But maybe you have a hard time seeing reasons to give thanks for them. There's something that you might not notice at first about this passage at first glance. is the fact that Paul's gratefulness here is honestly really surprising. Which brings us to the second thing I want to talk about here for a couple minutes. I want us to pay attention a little bit to the surprise of gratefulness here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You see, when the original audience, when the Corinthian church heard these words in verse 4, I thank my God always for you, these words were not just sweet words of affirmation. These words were surprising words of affirmation. And to see how surprising these words must have been, I want to invite you to think for just a minute about some of the things that were going on in the church in Corinth that Paul was writing to. Here's just a quick list of the things that were going on. And if you were part of that Corinthian church about 2,000 years ago, you would know that all of these things are absolutely true in the room that you're gathered in. If you were a part of that church, then you would know that there are deep and bitter divisions in your church family right now leading to arrogant attitudes within and leading to quarrels and arguments with each other over who it is who follows the more impressive celebrity teachers. And yet, despite all of this division, which stinks and is rotten and is obviously not right, 
despite these divisions, Paul says, I thank God always for you. If you're a part of this church 2,000 years ago in Corinth, then you know that there is significant opposition to Paul himself. Significant opposition to Paul where some people are saying, you know, I'm glad that Paul moved so that we can get ourselves some better teachers than him. And yet, and yet Paul says, I thank God always for you, church members, even while you're over there gossiping about me and slandering me behind my back. If you're a part of this church, then you know that there are some in this church who are shamelessly and unrepentantly devoting themselves to kinds of sexual immorality that even their pagan neighbors know are wrong. See chapters 5 and 6. And yet, Paul says to this church, I thank God always for you. If you're part of this church, then you know that there's all kinds of confusion about God's design for singleness and marriage and divorce. See chapter 7. And yet Paul says, I thank God always for all y'all. He spoke with a southern accent. The language Greek had its plural. We don't, except if you live in Atlanta. That's why I say that. If you're part of this church, then you know that the worship gatherings have become a horrible circus of self-expression and self-promotion. So much so that when Paul writes to this congregation, he says to them these words. He says, quote, in the following, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Track with me here for a second. I don't know how many times you've been to church in your life. If you've been to church a lot like I have, you've probably sat through some pretty mediocre church services. You've probably sat through some pretty mediocre sermons. You've sat through some pretty bland times of worship, all right? Maybe this is one of them for you, and if so, I'm sorry. Just persevere with me. But here's the point I'm getting at. The point I'm getting at is this. How bad does church have to get before the Apostle Paul writes and says, it would have been better if you didn't even go at all? That's what Paul says to the Corinthian church. When you get together, it's not making you better and it's not even just like well i went home and i we tried our best it's like we're worse off for having to go into church this morning how bad does church have to get before that's your honest assessment and evaluation of things and yet paul writes to this church and says i thank god always for you the list could go on but we'll leave it at that When Paul says, I thank God always for you, it's not just a sweet word of gratefulness. It is a surprising word of gratefulness. How is it that Paul is able to speak with such deep gratefulness for people who are so deeply messed up? Here's the thing that we need to start noticing about this. It's that Paul's expressions of gratefulness are not based in the issue of deserving. If you're a part of that Corinthian church 2,000 years ago, you've grown up in a meritocracy, a place where your status in society is determined by what you've accomplished 
determined by your achievements. It's determined by how impressive your resume is. And writing to these people who grew up in this meritocracy where they're used to constantly being measured by other people, constantly being evaluated every time they walk through the marketplace, writing to these people who live in a meritocracy where people are used to living their whole lives based on self-achievement, Paul writes these words that must have come as a surprise, must have come like a torpedo of grace busting into their church and busting into their ways of thinking. Because this gratefulness that he offers is not based on their deserving. Now, to be sure, everything he writes here is accurate and true. But Paul's gratefulness, it's not based on their deserving of it. If you're a part of this Corinthian congregation, at some point as you're listening to this loud and enthusiastic expression of gratefulness, you're going to find yourself saying, Paul, thanks for the thankfulness. I don't deserve it. Paul, thanks for the thankfulness, but I know the other stuff going on in my life. I don't deserve for you to be grateful for me like that. And if you're a part of this divided Corinthian church, and you're hearing these expressions of gratefulness from Paul, you're not only thinking, thanks for the thankfulness, but I don't deserve it. You're also sitting there thinking to yourself, Paul, thanks for the thankfulness, and I kind of don't deserve it, but I'm sure that they don't deserve it. <laughs> the rest of the clowns sitting down the row from me, I know that they don't deserve your gratefulness. I know that they haven't lived up to the standards that I would have for them. Thanks for the thankfulness, but Paul, we don't deserve it. And this may be helpful for us in its own way. Listen, if your experience in life has been that you've met a lot of flawed Christians, maybe the book of 1 Corinthians is some sort of comfort to you. I don't mean that in a way that dismisses the fact that Christians have been hypocritical or flawed, or faulty in various ways. I don't mean that in a way that dismisses that, but maybe the book of 1 Corinthians is of some comfort to realize that you're not the first person in history to be surrounded by a bunch of deeply flawed Christians. Maybe, for your part, you feel like you'd like to be a more grateful person. I think gratefulness is one of those values that has some currency in our culture today. It's part of a good life. It's part of a happy life to be a grateful person. And maybe you think to yourself, I'd like to be more grateful, but you know what needs to happen in order for me to be more grateful? My family needs to change. Like, if I had a family that gave me more reasons to be grateful for them, I'd be the most grateful dad in the block. Or maybe you honestly think to yourself, it's, you know, it's my church's fault. Like if the other people in my church were a little bit more worthy of my gratefulness, man, I'd be the most grateful church member in America. Maybe in the workplace, you know, maybe as a boss, you just think, man, I would love to be known as a grateful boss, but the first thing that would have to happen is I'd have to get a whole bunch of new employees because these ones don't give me any reasons to express my gratefulness. 
it's my employee's fault. They don't give me enough to be grateful for. Maybe you say it's my fiance's fault that he doesn't give me enough to be grateful for. Maybe you say it's my wife's fault that she doesn't give me enough reasons to be grateful for her. The list of excuses could go on and on. But Paul shows us here in 1 Corinthians 1 something revolutionary. He shows us that Christian gratefulness is not based on other people being 100% deserving. Let this sink in for a moment. Christian gratefulness is possible even when the people around us are sinful, misguided, difficult, and deeply flawed. Even in these situations where people around us are sinful, misguided, difficult, and deeply flawed, even in these situations, Christian gratefulness is possible. It's kind of surprising. But the question that raises then is, well then, what is the basis for Christian gratefulness, if Christian gratefulness is not based on people being 100% deserving, why is Paul giving thanks? Or to put the question a different way, how can we learn the art of gratefulness in a fallen world which is filled with such sinful and broken and flawed people? How can we learn the art of gratefulness in the real world that we live in? That brings us to the reason for gratefulness. And the reason for gratefulness here in this passage is stated very plainly. Look with me, if you would, again at verse 4. You'll be able to see the reason yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the, what's the word there? Grace. You guys, I, get, I put you to sleep already. I'm sorry. I skipped the introduction. You guys are asleep now. Shows me about communication. All right. Let's read this again. Verse 4. Wake up. All right. <laughs> Verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Jesus Christ. I can summarize for you in one word the reason for Christian gratefulness. And in one word, the reason is grace. The grace of of God. See, Paul's model of Christian gratefulness is not about praising humans for the honors that they have earned. It's about thanking God for His grace, which is at work. Do you see the difference? Do you see the revolutionary difference? See, there's a deep connection between our grasp of the gospel of grace and our ability to give thanks for other people. I'll put it like this. The reason that we struggle with gratefulness is because we do not get grace. I hope this isn't too much of a tangent, and I'm already putting you guys to sleep, but track with me if you would. Just last night I was thinking about this issue, and it occurred to me that God is not pleased with all forms of gratefulness. There are 
kinds of gratefulness. There are ways of giving thanks that God is opposed to. So consider for a moment the teaching of Jesus. In Luke chapter 18, I think it may appear up here or may not. If not, Luke chapter 18, verse 9, it says that Jesus told a parable, quote, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and who treated others with contempt. And he told this parable to them. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So pause one second on that story. If you're alive in Jesus' time and place, you understand Pharisee equals good guy, tax collector equals bad guy. Pharisee equals religious person who does the right things, who prays all the time and stuff like that. Tax collector equals robber who steals money for the filthy, dirty government and takes stuff away from us. Uh, sometimes uh, for his own benefit, right? So Pharisee equals good guy, tax collector equals bad guy. And then Jesus goes on in his parable to describe it like this, quote, the Pharisee, good guy we're supposed to think, standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. What is that? That's an expression of gratefulness. He's giving thanks. God, I thank you that I'm not like all those other clowns all around me. But notice how Jesus continues the parable. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus concludes this parable with this zinger of a line saying, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, declared righteous before God rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This parable is a story of a man who expressed gratefulness, but for all the wrong reasons. He expressed a kind of gratefulness, but that gratefulness was rooted in the wrong soil. It was rooted in the poisonous soil of self-righteousness. And that kind of gratefulness does not please God. When we seek to exalt ourselves, when we want to trust in ourselves and what we've earned, when we want to look down on others with contempt, the result is that God rejects and opposes us even when we put on pretend outward fake words of gratefulness. Only the gospel of grace will free us up truly to give thanks like never before. And here, back here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, speaking to a flawed church, Paul says, I thank God always for you. Why? Because of the grace of God that was given you. You see, there is this connection between gratefulness and grace in Paul's mind. There is this connection between giving thanks and grasping the grace of God which is at work in other people's lives. Where does Paul look in order to spotlight the grace of God that otherwise was overlooked? Or the question for us, where can we look in the lives of others around us to discover the grace of God? 
of God when it is sometimes overlooked or hard to see. I want to show you quickly four places that Paul looked, four directions that Paul looked that we can look as well. First of all, we can look back and search for reasons to give thanks in God's past gracious activity in other people's lives. We can look back and give thanks for grace in the past. Look with me, if you would, briefly at verse 5. I thank God that in every way you were enriched in Him. What is that? It's past tense. He's looking at the church in Corinth and he's saying, I know that in the past, God's work, God's hand, His grace was at work in your lives there in the past. I was talking to my friend Rich Jimenez not long ago, and he was recounting for me with this kind of glow on his face about this season in his life when he had just become a believer recently, and he started studying the book of Romans with some other people that he knew as Christians. And and I love this line, as Rich told me with a smile on his face, his eyes were smiling as he said, by the time we got to chapter 9, our lives were different. How many of us have had that experience in the book of Romans? You start reading the book, and by the time we get to chapter 9, our lives are different. I heard, I heard Rich recounting that experience of God's grace in the past. I just thought, thank God for what God has been doing in your life across time and across the years, right? We can look back and we can thank God for His grace that was at work in other seasons. Secondly, we can look around and search for reasons to give thanks for God's grace in the present tense as well. It's not just that God did stuff for us back then, early in our walk with Him. No, God is still at work today, and that's exactly what Paul points out to this church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. I thank God so that you were enriched so that, present tense, you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. I thank God that today He is at work in your midst and His grace is doing such stuff that, in such a way that His gifts are all over this congregation. And you can notice the specificity of Paul's words here. Uh, if you've studied Paul's other letters, you, you might be aware that there's no other congregation that Paul writes to with this same affirmation. It's interesting, isn't it? Paul is looking at their church, and he's not just generically, broadly, just kind of broad brush, like, well, I'm sure God's grace is at work in your midst. No, he looks at their congregation specifically, and he can identify there's something unique in your congregation, something wonderful about the way that the gifts of the Spirit are at work. And this, too, is surprising. You guys, I'm sure, are going to get into this later on down the road. But one of the reasons for all of the division in their church is that some of the believers in the church are like, I got this spiritual gift, and that makes me a super Christian. And other people in the church are like, no, but we got this spiritual gifts, so we're the super-duper Christians. And then other people are like, no, we got the gift of mercy. We actually get something done. None of y'all have the real, you know, the real stuff except for us. And so there's these, these divisions in the church over who has which spiritual gift and which spiritual gift makes you superior to others. And Paul, he just kind of sets that aside for now. He's like, we'll get into talking about that later. But when I think about your church... I thank God for the number of spiritual gifts that are at work. And even here, he's beginning to recalibrate the way they think about spiritual gifts, right? 
Spiritual gifts are not about self-promotion. They're not about making me better than you. They're not about which of us is, is in the better, cooler, awesomer, more super-duper group than the others. It's about the grace of God getting broadcast throughout the body of Christ. That's one way that we can begin to see God's grace, not only by looking back, but by looking around and saying, where is God at work today in the lives of people around me? What is he doing? Here's a third place we can look. Paul not only looks back and looks around, he also looks forward and gives thanks to God in anticipation of future grace yet to be delivered. Look with me at verse 8. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's going on here? Paul is looking at a church full of people, some of whom are anything but guiltless. I mean, in truth, they're guilty. I mean, in truth, they've wronged other people. I mean, in truth, they've messed up. I mean, in truth, they are deeply flawed. And yet Paul looks at their lives and he says, I believe so deeply in what the cross has accomplished for your complete forgiveness. And I believe so deeply in this idea of the good news of justification by faith alone that I thoroughly believe that on the last day when judgment is done, the verdict that will be spoken over your life will be blameless for everybody who believes in Jesus. Paul believes so deeply in the good news of grace for other people that he can look forward and say, I'm thanking God because I know that on the last day the verdict over your life, the final word spoken from the throne above will be this word, blameless. Now, enter into the joy of your master. Paul looks back, he looks around, he looks forward. And there's a fourth dimension here of, of where we can look to spy out Christian or reasons for Christian gratefulness. We can also, if you will, look up and give thanks for God's unchanging grace. His unchanging grace. Notice what Paul says here in verse 9. Paul getting kind of deeper and deeper into theology, he anchors this discussion, not anchoring it in what God has done in your life in the past, not anchoring it in what God is doing in the present, not anchoring it even in what God will say on the final day. You see where God anchors it there in verse 9? He anchors his reasons for gratefulness in the unchanging grace of God. He anchors it in the character of God himself. Look at verse 9. God is faithful. God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And here's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, he's saying that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there was a time in your life when God called you out of darkness. And called you to turn from your sins and to trust in Jesus Christ. He called you to himself at one point in the past. And when we look back at that, we say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. But Paul is reminding us the God who called you in the past is at work in the present and will be at work in the future all the way to the last day. The God of grace is unchanging in who he is. He is faithful. The 
The one who sought you out when you were running the other direction and brought you in near. Oh, he is faithful, Paul says. And this, this is the, this is the rock-solid basis on which Paul anchors, in which Paul anchors his expressions of gratefulness. The anchor is this, God is faithful. You see, Christian gratefulness is not rooted ultimately in who we are or what we've accomplished. It's rooted in what? In the grace of God. The grace of God at work in the past, the grace of God at work in the present, the grace of God that will continue working in the future, the grace of God that never changes because God is faithful. That's, that's the ultimate foundation. That's the root system. That's the soil in which the roots of Christian gratefulness will grow. And as we realize that, as we see these profound truths about this connection between gratefulness and grace, what happens to us? Let me mention just a couple of effects here, a couple of effects that I think should be bubbling up in our hearts, that should be growing within us and should be overflowing to others around us. The first effect is this. As we pay attention to what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it should lead us to give thanks to God for His grace in your own life. Give thanks to God for His grace in your life. One of the very important tools of Bible study is not just to read the Bible and skip straight to what does this mean for me today, but to start by saying, what did this mean to the first people who read this letter? What did this mean to the original audience? And if you've grown up in a meritocracy there in Corinth, and you're used to being measured by other people's standards, you're used to being measured by impossible standards that you've set for yourself, what is one of the first effects of hearing the Apostle Paul write and say, I thank God always for His grace at work in you? It might even make you uncomfortable at first. Why? Because we keep on saying, but I don't deserve it! Because we keep rolling out of the mindset of grace and rolling back into a mindset of achievement. We might be uncomfortable with it, but one of the effects is that this passage should lead the original hearers, and this passage, through the work of the Holy Spirit today, should lead us genuinely in our own hearts to say, God, thank you for what you've done in my life. Some of us are not very good at that. Um, a little while ago, we had a, we, uh, about every month or so, uh, Katie and I have a few couples come over to our house, kind of small group thing, and we talk about life talk about things going on and one of the one of our friends there named Kimberly was sharing kind of uh, some encouragement with me um, and I listened to it and then after I listened to the encouragement I think I kind of did something I often do I kind of made a joke to kind of deflect and get off the topic because I'm kind of uncomfortable with that kind of stuff and so then Kimberly just kind of a little bit joking but like 95% serious was like Josh you're not very good at receiving encouragement are you And I think I made another joke <laughs> to deflect away. But I kind of had to let that sink in a little bit, and I realized kind of immediately there's something to this. There's something going on in my heart. I think the word for it is shame. There's something going on in my heart that strangles out my ability to see and believe that God's grace really is at work in my own life. 
There's something in my own heart that strangles out gratefulness for what God is doing in me. Why? Because I keep defaulting back to, yeah, but there are a bunch of other things I should have done better. Maybe I did that okay, but I should have done that better. Well, maybe that was okay, but I could have done it better. Maybe that turned out okay, but I should have seen this coming sooner. Maybe that worked out okay, but I should have, I should have, I should have, right? And what is that? My grasp on grace, while I know all about the grace of God in the gospel in my head, my grasp of God's grace in my own heart has got a little bit weak. And therefore, sometimes it's difficult for me to really even do something as simple as hear a word of encouragement and look someone in the eyes and say, thank you. I'm glad that God got something done the other day. One of the effects of this passage is that it should lead us to be people who are eager to give thanks to God for His grace in our lives. A second effect of this passage is that it should lead us to be people who give thanks to God for His grace in other people's lives around us, right? See, as we grasp God's grace more and more, it not only frees us up to receive encouragement, it not only frees us up to begin to believe that God's grace really is at work in my life, it also frees us up to begin looking around at the lives of other faulty and flawed people around us, and it enables us, it frees us up, in fact, it propels us out, and it motivates us and electrifies this process of going around to others and saying, I thank God for what He's doing in your life right now. Frees us up to do that. Paul is not looking at this church like a referee with a yellow flag in his back pocket, just looking for another reason to throw a flag at someone's back. Paul is walking around the field of play in his community. He's walking around the field of play in the church, looking for reasons to pat people on the back and say, I thank God for what's going on in your life. Let me read to you a quote that I found meaningful from an author named Eugene Peterson. This is from way back in 1989. Can we say, whoa, some of you were not alive. Way back in what my kids call the 1900s, Eugene Peterson wrote this observation about Paul. He says, assuming that their church, writing about their church there, he says, assuming that their church had the same percentage of sinners in it as modern ones do, namely 100%, fair to assume, then it would be a mistake to envy Paul, his congregation. In other words, that's that issue we were talking about earlier. Just saying, well, if my family gave me more reasons to be grateful, I'd, uh, you know, if I, had, if I had that church, I could be plenty great. If I had that, I'd be great, right? It would be a mistake to envy Paul, his congregation, a congregation that it was possible to address so grateful. It is better to admire Paul's ability to see God's action in those flawed people. Paul, he says, had a meticulous eye for the signs of grace. Wouldn't it be sweet if this could be said about us as believers in Jesus Christ today? He had a meticulous eye for the signs of grace. I love this picture. He was God's spy. We love spies sneaking around, finding out information. Paul was God's spy, searching out the congregational terrain for evidence that the Holy Spirit had been there. I read that passage, and every time I read it, it just challenges me. I want to live like God's spy this week. 
And I want to share that challenge with you in light of what God says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. What if we entered this week not like referees with a yellow flag in our back pocket just looking for someone to throw it at? What if we entered this week walking around like I'm, I'm God's spy? And it is my mission this week to discover the ways that the Holy Spirit is already at work in other people's lives around me. What if it were my job to walk around and tell other people, Christian or not, like believer or not believer, like I see some good things in you that I believe God put in you for a purpose. What if we were walking around our neighborhoods encouraging our neighbors? What if we went into our workplace with a mission from God to point out the things that God has equipped people with? What if we go to our next small group meeting looking around the room not just thinking, man, I could imagine a much more epic meeting than this, but what if we went into the room looking around saying, wow, look, God is really at work empowering my friend to have interesting observations and insights. Wow, God is really at work in that couple helping them move toward each other despite how strained their relationship has felt over the last year while God is really at work in that dad's life that he's taking more time to invest in his kids while God is really at work in that person's life that they're digging into God's word more than ever before while God is really at work that that person is still even associating themselves with Jesus despite how hard it's felt to feel associated with Jesus like what if we went into our next week just feeling like it is my mission to be God's spy looking around for where God is already at work and then doing what? Giving thanks to God for it. Saying, God, this is your grace at work. Giving Him praise for what He's done. And then out loud, with humility, not to build up other people, but to glorify God, just speaking those words one person at a time. Every place where we spy out another fingerprint of God. Every place where we spy out one other thing that the image of God is working out in somebody's life. How different might our weeks be? How different might your Monday be if you go into Monday like God's spy? Looking for evidence where he's at work. What would Tuesday be like if we go in there as God's spy? What would this next week, what would our lives be like if we live not in this mindset that says, I'll give encouragement when it's deserved, but what if our lives are really reshaped by the good news of the gospel of grace. By the good news that our God who sent his son Jesus Christ in love for us to give his life for us sought each one of us out individually and is still at work in our lives and will be at work to the end knowing that he is faithful. How would that free us up to be people whose lives are characterized by a different kind of gratefulness? What difference might that make? Well, let's take a moment at this time and bow our heads together in prayer.